Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, and now the forthcoming Simple Homebrew. That's right. Keep your eyes open for it in the spring. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, we'll head to the pub. Oh, wait. No, we're not heading to the pub. (laughs) Today, it's a bit of a retrospective on this episode. So, uh, as we just mentioned, uh, we're finishing the book right now. And Denny's off to hop and brew school at the end of this weekend, so we need some extra time in our schedule. So we figured instead of going dark for the week, we're going to go ahead and bring you some new feedback and also bring back a couple of our favorite segments so that you can hear things that you may have missed the first time through. And if you didn't miss them, then at least you can enjoy them again because there's some really cool info and fun interviews coming up. And uh, when I get back from hop and brew school, we'll have some new stuff for you then. But before we get into all of this, sit back, relax, and check out this message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Well, hey, thank you for sticking around. And don't forget, if you ever have interactions and dealings with our sponsors, make sure that you mention that you heard them on Experimental Brew. It lets them know that their dollars are being spent well. Now, of course, if you haven't been listening, and you may have missed that last week's episode of The Brew Files, episode 43, is called An Old Secret, all about one of our favorite styles of beer, alt beer, and digging you know straight into how we've brewed alt beer in the past and why we think that you should brew alt beer in the past. Or, wait, no, you should <laughs> brew alt beer in the future. <laughs> hey, that was good. Yeah, and uh, judging by the amount of email we're getting about it, we have a lot of alt beer fans out there. Yay, bring back alt beer. Brew alt again. I'm alt for it. <laughs> hey, it, look, no, hold on. Wait, now, in this relationship, my job is the puns. Oh, so, Go away. Sorry, sorry, man. Uh, I'll play the straight man again. We also want to let you know that uh, 
Coming up this March, March 22nd and 23rd, 2019, there's a Brew Your Own Boot Camp in Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm going to be there along with our good buddy Marshall Schott, and we're going to be teaching a class on experimentation. Uh, it's an all-day-long class. There are lots of other classes going on, too. Uh, Chris White will be there, John Palmer, Gordon Strong, a whole list of all the great people in the homebrewing world, and you can learn from them. So go to byobootcamp.com, check it out, sign up, and I hope I'll see you there. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website. And by the way, don't forget, if you do uh, register for the bootcamp, mention Experimental Brewing in the comments. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is called Nowzad. This is a great organization in Afghanistan. It was started to uh, help soldiers who adopted dogs there, take care of them, help them bring them home. And they've expanded uh, beyond that now. Wonderful, wonderful organization. And they help dogs and veterans. And to me, that's a good combination. So please uh, go to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Click the Patreon link and throw us a few bucks that we will pass on to Nowzad. And now... It's time for feedback. feedback. Oh, I love it when you do that. You're so manly. Well, we all have our talents, right? Yeah, that's right. Our first piece of feedback, actually, both of our pieces of feedback this week are all about the alt beer episode that you just uh, talked about on the brew files. And the first comment comes from Alex from uh, Göttingen, uh, Germany. And I know I butchered that. Sorry, Alex. says, when I listened to the latest brew files episode on alt beer, uh, doing my experimental brew cycling routine, he says he cycles listening to our podcast. So we, uh, contribute to his health. Right on. I picked up on something that I wanted to comment on. So since Denny is a fan of rather traditional interpretations of several beer styles, he begged us listeners to keep the fruit out of it. You may have heard that at the end of the episode. That's right. Well, guess what? It is traditional to put fruit in an alt beer. What I'm referring to is called alt beer bowl. And in order to make it, you produce a red berry syrup, a classic would be strawberry, and put it in a glass before topping it with fresh alt beer. For this drink, it is crucial to have pieces of fruit in the glass. Something strange for people not familiar with this tradition, as I found out serving it to friends in Dublin. Ew, mine still has flabby pieces in it, he said, making a disgusted faces. Yep, that's the way it's supposed to be, I answered, smiling <laughs> confidently. So, Denny. Yeah, well, hey, man, I have, I have just learned something, and uh, if you want to put fruit in your alt beer, go right ahead. Uh, I might try a sip, but it just doesn't sound all that good to me, so... There you go. Well, I mean, I mean, it sounds kind of in that same vein as like, you know, Berliner Weissmann juice, right? You know, so get your raspberry or Woodruff syrups in there. Uh, to, to me, it sounds different because the Berliner Weiss is a, is a really sour beer to start with. And then you're adding sweet syrup to it. And I can kind of see that working. I, I, I can't envision this, but like I said, you know, I'd at least try it. <laughs> Well, and at least this is a safer and saner way of putting fruit in your beer than all those people trying to package cans right now <laughs> yeah, really. with, with fruit in them. It's, it's unlikely your glass will explode when you put fruit in it. Yeah, if your glass explodes after the fruit is in there, you're taking too long to drink it. <laughs> That's right. And our other piece of feedback comes from James Werner, who wins the award for the comment of the week when he writes... I may altogether have to alter some plans to listen in the altruistic spirit of making good beer for others. Okay, that, that that's pretty much worthy of Drew there. Yeah, that's just proving that homebrewers and puns go together like IPA and hops. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, we've got a lot of stuff to get through today, so we're going to get out of here, head over to the lounge, and we are going to listen to a couple of vintage archive pieces. One about our Cezanne Under Pressure experiment, and the other one, uh, the interview with Glenn Tinseth we did about how you can never really be sure how many IBUs are in your beer. So please stick around, and we'll be right back. Savor some of Y-East's exclusive Belgian strains with the Belgische Zomer private collection this summer. Backed by popular demand, the Forbidden Fruit, Trappist-style blend, and the Canadian-Belgian ale strains encompass the entire spectrum of yeast properties and are distinguished by their coveted ester and phenolic profiles. Take advantage of these strains to brew a full range of Belgian styles, from traditional everyday drinking to the bigger and more complex. The versatility of this collection is perfect for savoring all summer long. These strains are available July through September at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Thanks for sticking around. We are sitting here lounging in the lounge, getting ready to listen to a couple of our favorite pieces that we have done over the past few years. The first one was kind of uh, brought about by some of Drew's experimentation with Cezanne, so I'll let him talk about that one. Right. So we've talked about this multiple times now. If you guys haven't heard me say it, then you're going to hear me say it again. For Saison, obviously, I'm a huge fan of the DuPont strains, but they have a notorious uh, a notorious reputation. Uh, finicky. <laughs> troublesome. Not worth the effort. Well, I say pshaw, and I, I promote the idea of doing open fermentation because apparently these yeast strains really don't like a lot of CO2, either dissolved or back pressure we haven't quite decided, but it is very clear, at least to me and my brewing experience, that you know 
doing open fermentation, aka sans airlock, maybe some aluminum foil over the top of a carboy, works a lot better with those DuPont strains 3724 and 565 from White Labs. And we decided to go ahead and put that to the test. And so what you're going to hear is the results of that particular experiment. And you're also going to hear from Jeremiah Martson, who is one of our Igors in this thing, who, well, he kind of had the never-ending Saison. Yeah, uh, Jeremiah is a member of my club. He's a high-powered chemist, so we decided he would be a good person to get in on this. So uh, sit back, relax, and check out Saison Under Pressure. Okay, everybody, we are here in the lab today to report on some experimental results. And besides Drew and me, we have our good buddy and fellow experimental Marshall Schott with us from Brewlosophy. How you doing, Marshall? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back on. I'm doing good. Thanks for being here, buddy. I think it's very cool that uh, we can coordinate our experiments like this and get a whole wide range of results. <laughs> and by wide range, I mean wide range. <laughs> What's amazing is that we that we I don't think we actually planned this out. We just happened to do be doing something yeah. similar at the same time. Yeah. So. Yeah, I know, man. Well, serendipity works. There it is. Well, and 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 I and I think yeah. I mean, going forward, I hope that you know periodically we can come back and revisit this sort of thing because I like the reaching out via different audiences and different me- methodologies and seeing. Is there something there? Definitely. Yeah, and as we all know, uh, the bigger the sample you get, the, the more interesting the results become. For sure. So, Drew, do you want to uh, run down what the experiment was exactly? All right, yeah. So, this is the experiment that is all about my particular technique of uh, brewing saisons and something that I learned a number of years ago, where the DuPont strains, or what everybody thinks are the DuPont strains, which are uh, Y-East 3724 Belgian saison. And White Labs 565 uh, Belgian Saison. They're notorious. They're finicky. They're a pain in the rear to use, uh, at least according to internet lore and homebrewers in general, because they'll get going. You make a big starter. Uh, they run like gangbusters for the first three days, and then they sort of poop out and hang out for two weeks before finally picking back up and finishing out the beer. And, I had never really experienced that problem, at least not for years and years. And I was finally talking with some folks from uh, a couple of the yeast companies, and they they hinted in that the yeast strains are back pressure sensitive, according to what they're able to figure out. And what that means is that any additional pressure in the fermenter causes them to stall out. Uh, <clears throat> and so I realized that, oh, well, then the reason I've never seen this is because I open ferment most of my beers, including my saisons. So I literally put the wort into my 10-gallon corny kegs, crack the pressure relief valve, and slap a piece of foil over the top of it, and then let them run. I have a very particular protocol that I do, which is I chill the wort down into the mid-60s, preferably around 63, and then pitch a healthy quantity of yeast, crack open the pressure relief valve, let it sit for three days uh, at a relatively cool temperature, so somewhere in the low 60s uh, to the mid-60s, and then let the heat rip and go, right? Because that's been everybody's solution in the past is, oh, you've got to get the DuPont strains really, really hot, you know, 90 degrees or 80 degrees or something like that in order to get them to ferment. And I use part of that, but when I've done forced heating uh, for the entire period of time, I've gotten some really nasty characters out of it. So I like that start of an initial cool fermentation followed by a hot rocket finish. 
And so what we did was we had the Igors uh, give this one a test. Uh, we used my recipe, uh, which is my Saison Experimental, which is a very clean, very classic, very simple Saison. Uh, and uh, we had them use uh, YEAST 3724 or White Labs 565. And we had them do exactly my protocol. And we also had them do one of the fermenters with an airlock and one without. And I know a lot of people are out there going, oh, you know, an airlock's not going to make that much difference. It's only like an inch of water. Well, let's find out. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I guess uh, we're, we're going to start off here by playing an interview that I did uh, with a guy in my club by the name of Jeremiah Marsden. Uh, Jeremiah is a chemist by trade and uh, runs a chemical analysis company. He is an amazingly good brewer uh, with a wide array of very cool equipment. And uh, he he did this experiment and uh, reported on his results. So uh, let's just take a quick listen to that. So uh, we're talking to my friend Jeremiah Marsden, who's a member of my homebrew club, the Cascade Brewer Society, and he did the Saison experiment himself. Uh, how's it going today, Jeremiah? Doing well, Benny. How are you? Uh, I'm great, man. So, uh, just a little bit about your background here, just so people know. You are a chemist, is that correct? That's right. Uh, and you run your own chemistry company of some sort, uh, right? Doing analysis? Yeah, Cascade Custom Chemistry. So, we're a synthetic lab. We've got 15 chemists, mostly working for pharmaceutical companies. Wow, cool, man. So, uh, tell me, uh, how did you go about doing this Saison experiment? What, what was the recipe that you used and what was, uh, your procedure? Yeah, I used, um, Drew's recipe that he published and kind of went about a similar protocol that he had. So, you would get about 85% Pilsner, um, 5% flaked wheat, and then about 10% sugar. Uh, a little magnum in there for hops at 60 minutes, 20 IBU. And then uh, used the Y yeast 3724, the Belgian Saison yeast. Right, right. And did you just brew one batch of wort and split it, I assume? Yep, one five-gallon batch uh, using the Grain Father brew system. That was that was going to be my next question. If you used your grandfather on it, yep. <laughs> I kind of figured you would. So, uh, tell me about the uh, the fermentation. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I split that into two two and a half gallon carboys. One of them uh, put in an S lock bubbler. The other one was left open with a loose foil cap. Um. Pitched them both about uh, 64 degrees, I think, and um, just let it kind of rock at room temperature. It was in the 60s. I think it went up probably low 70s in the first three days. Yeah. And let's see. I checked the gravities uh, day three after it started. It seemed like it started to slow down at day three. And then they were both at 1036. From 10:56 starting. Okay. And uh, both proceeding pretty similarly at that point. Um, day 10, checked them again, and the one with the bubbler was at 10:30. The one uh, open with the foil was at 10:24. So. Whoa! So that was at day 10. 
day 10, yeah. So you were seeing a really big difference just a week and a half in. Yeah, which surprised me. I came into this thinking it was uh, bogus. <laughs> Hear that, Drew? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I know that Drew has done this often enough that he was pretty certain of the results. So uh, I'm glad that we don't have to tell him that he's full of it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me that there's not that much pressure in a bubbler, but I guess the CO2 is scrubbing out more easily if it's open, my guess. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a... An interesting thing, from your point of view as a chemist, can you think of anything that is causing this? I think it, maybe the yeast is just sensitive to CO2, and when it's open, you're getting kind of more movement in there, the CO2 coming out more easily. Uh huh. Not sure if that's right or not. So what was the final gravity on both of them? Okay, so I kept checking these after a while. And I started swirling after 10 days to get the yeast kind of, both get the yeast in suspension and to help the CO2 come out. Uh-huh. And, okay, day 22, we're still plugging along. The With the bubbler, now we're down to 1028, dropped a couple points. But with the open one, we're down to 1006. Wow, 22 yeah. points difference? Yeah, yeah. And that was uh, three weeks. Whoa. And did you just make one starter and divide it between the two batches, or did you make two starters, or how did you do that? Um, I did not make a starter. I okay. just I poured the uh, yeast into a grad cylinder mm -hmm. and poured half into each fermenter. Okay. Okay. And uh, so then we, so then you just split one one smack pack between the the two fermenters, right? Right. So then we didn't have to uh, to worry about different day codes and stuff. And no, uh, knowing what you do and how you do things, I'm going to trust that uh, that you got the yeast divided pretty evenly. Yeah. Yeah. We use the graduated cylinders. So. <laughs> you you have equipment far beyond what the average home brewer uses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, and okay, so the and what about the the taste of the final batches? So the the one that dried out, the open one, I kegged that up. It tastes great, and I worried maybe it was infection that caused it to drop. Uh, it's clearly not infected. It did taste great. It's similar to Dupont Saison. Right. Um, the one with the bubbler, that now is at six or seven weeks. I'm still working on it. So <laughs> I left the bubbler on. I tried heating it uh, in the 90s for about a week. Right. It didn't drop at all during that period. Um, and then uh, left it about two or three weeks after that, just at room temperature, and it's down to about 1020 now. So it is still going. Wow, and that's interesting. Just the taste from the samplers—it uh, tastes great. A little, little sweet, but I, I'm just going to let it, let it sit yeah. and go. So, uh, based on this, uh, when you make saisons in the future, will you be using the open fermentation method? I sure will with this. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and I I do believe that it's somewhat strain dependent too. I I think that if you're going to like say use thirty seven eleven or something like that, you won't find uh, as yeah. much of of a difference. So, 
Okay, Jeremiah, I'm going to let you get back to your exciting work day, but uh, thanks a lot for taking some time out to talk to us about the Cezanne experiment. No problem. Thanks, Denny. All right, man. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So uh, we heard Jeremiah's results on the experiment, and I got to tell you, in some ways I'm surprised, and in some ways I'm not surprised. Uh, his, uh, his fermentation performance pretty much matched what Drew had found in terms of, uh, of airlock versus no airlock and attenuation versus less attenuation. But on the other hand, tasting, the beers seem to be remarkably similar. Uh, what do you think? I, well, I think that's pretty fascinating. One, it completely confirms Drew's theory, which um, which we'll get to my results later. But um, the the fact, if if I if I heard correctly, he still has uh, the airlock batch sitting in the fermenter, and it's still slowly attenuating. Yeah. Right. So he's he's comparing fermenting beer to uh, basically a finished beer that, and they taste about the same. Um, that to me says a lot about how you know fermentation character isn't always the most defining aspect of a beer which is pretty pretty <laughs> just really interesting to me well well and and you've seen i mean we've done experiments before and we've seen other ex- people's experiments where they talk about oh you know this beer had a radically different final gravity from the other sample and people still have a hard time picking it out i and for me i've always said i don't think this is necessarily uh, the technique is necessarily a flavor influencer as much as it is an ability to get the damn thing to finish yeah i can hmm. i can see that for sure um you know and it is it is just fascinating to me and definitely contrary to the conventional homebrew wisdom uh that beers with such radically different final gravities or specific gravities in the case of the one that isn't finished fermenting yet uh, can be so similar in flavor. So, I also think it. Uh, I think it also helps that the particular yeast strains that we're talking about are very big character producers. They have very distinctive characters, and those characters are all generated early in fermentation. So, what you've got is all those clove and spice and and other flavors that are in there from the very beginning, and now you're just getting to the point where you're shaving off kind of the final bits of sweetness. Because yeah, remember, right. he he did say that. Oh yeah, the second one, the second one tastes very similar, but it's yeah, still sweet right, a, a little bit. So, so Jeremiah had really dramatically different results, at least in the yeast performance in these two beers. But you didn't, huh, Marshall? No, and a little bit of self disclosure here. I'm not. I don't brew a lot of saison. You know, um, I I tend to stick with a lot of um, you know lager styles and and, and American ale. Um, so, so when I make a saison, I really want it to be good enough for me to want to drink since it's kind of unique that I have one on tap. Um, and so what I did is I, I did my best to follow, uh, the, the article over on the Malthus Falcons website that Drew put out a while ago, um, in terms of getting these results. And, and, uh, I'd never used the DuPont strain before, uh, either 565 or 3724, uh, so I didn't really know what to expect. And I'll admit, I kind of stayed away from it out of fear of this apparent issue. Um, so in designing the beer, I, um, I, I put together a, what I call my say you, say me, saison. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a recipe that I made last year using a different yeast, figured that it would work well for this. Um, I built up one of the things that I, it sounds like I did differently than Jeremiah is I actually did build up a starter, um, uh, 1,250 milliliters using two 
smack packs of 3724. Uh, and then I split that evenly between each batch. And my results, the, the objective results even were, were quite a bit different than what he got. I don't know yeah, if yeah, you want yeah, me to go, go into ahead, that man. now or. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the brew day was a typical brew day. I split the batch evenly trying to get as much, trying to equalize the kettle tube in each, in each carboy. Uh, one got covered with a sanitized piece of foil. The other one was immediately covered with an airlock. I uh, cooled the beers down to 64 degrees because I thought that was <laughs> right. Um, and I, once they got to 64, the, the starter was split between both. And I let them sit at, it was controlled to 64 degrees for three days before I came back and I started taking regular hydrometer uh, readings. Um, something I don't usually do, but I thought for this variable, it seemed prudent. Um, and so the very first hydrometer reading, both, both, uh, beers look to be right at about, uh, 1025, 1026 specific gravity. So they were looking the same at this point. Uh, again, I think that, that kind of goes in line as congruent with what Jeremiah found at first. Um, and then th this is when I, I bumped the regulator up to 90 degrees, but I didn't apply, I didn't apply any heat. So I just let it, the exothermic, uh, heat kind of bring it up on its own. Uh, over time. And I came back, let's see, four days later, took another hydrometer reading. I also noted the the temperature at this point to be 84 degrees. And at this point there was a difference, but it was in the opposite direction <laughs> than what I expected. Dude, you screwed it up. <laughs> the foil cup. And this is when I started, I know it was totally <laughs> my fault. Uh, this is when I really started questioning all of the, all of the information I've, you know, uh, I've absorbed from master drew <laughs> and, uh, what, <laughs> what I found was that, uh, so what, a full weekend, basically the foil covered batch was at 10, 12 specific gravity while the airlock batch was at 10, 10. So it had actually dropped two points lower, uh, than the non back pressure, uh, batch. I waited another four days and I came back and measured them again. Um, I had, I, I started applying heat as well to bring it up to 90 degrees. So now we're at what, 11 days and the foil batch had dropped to uh 10, 10 and the airlock batch was down at 10 07. So pretty, I don't, you know, in terms of, of, um, gravity measurements, that seems pretty, pretty yeah. different to me. Um, let's see here. Three more days. I took a lot of these hydrometer measurements. Um, Three days later, so I th believe that's 14 days, two weeks total. The foil-covered batch was at 10.07. The airlock batch was at 10.05. They were both sitting at 90 degrees at this point. Everything else looked exactly the same. Uh, you know, the, the, just the nature of fermentation, the way the Kreuzen looked, all that stuff looked the same. Uh, I've, I finally, another three days, so we're at, what, 17 days now. Uh, I, I took a hydrometer measurement that showed the foil covered batch to be at 1006, the airlock covered batch to be at 1004. And then I confirmed no change in that three days later, uh, two or three days later. And so that's, it was at that point that I started to cold crash the beers. So it, one of the, one of the things I thought was interesting is that this is this beer, regardless of whether it was covered with foil or an airlock took a long time to ferment compared to what I'm normally seeing, you know, when I'm using other ale yeasts. Hmm. That is really, that so, is really so did, weird. Uh, you got any explanations for that, Drew? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Marshall Dunn. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, uh, no, I would say, uh, I would argue. <laughs> I do yeah, do that. Well, we all yeah. do. Uh, <laughs> anybody who says they don't right. is lying. 
Um, <laughs> I would, I would suppose, I mean, one, I always say that doing, doing a lot of work to make sure that your yeast is healthy forgives a lot of sins in the brewing process. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, the starter, the starter makes a difference. I also think the fact that you force for, uh, force heated up to 90 also probably made a mm-hmm. difference as well. I mean, given the, the relative differences in your final gravities, even, and even the observed gravities as you were going along, uh, the differences are relatively negligible. Um, so I'm just trying to think, cause like with Jeremiah's batch, we know that he, he didn't force heat. Like he didn't get up into the nineties. He, uh, if I recall correctly from the interview, he got up into yeah, the mid seventies. That's right. So it, that, and I, I actually considered that when I first started to, um, when, I, when basically what I did, it was at 64 for three days. And then I just turned off the regulator. Mm-hmm. Um, which the way I do that is I just bump up, bump up the temp and unplug the heater. Right. So it was, it wasn't until about a week in when I'm, I'm trying to go back and look at the photo here. Um, let's see. Yeah. It wasn't until a full week in that I started ramping up the temp. And all I did is I, I, I would do five degrees ambient temp heated per day. So it would get up there and just kind of sit and the beers would slowly rise. So I was trying to be gentle about it. Um, and again, I don't, I don't make much Saison. A part of me thought that was the way you were supposed to do it. So I was just following convention, at least in my mind. But it wasn't, it was, I didn't push it really hard. I mean, it, it, it got to 90 eventually, you know, at the two week mark, but it, you know, it, they were, we were already down at 10, 10 ish range before I, before I applied any heat so, at all. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, Drew, why don't you talk a bit about uh, the results we got from the Igors? All right. Yeah. So now, we had uh, three different sets of results coming from the Igors, uh, uh, specifically Matt Yoakum, uh, who's a new Igor, James K, and uh, Jason Mundy all reported back in. And they had a total of uh, 35 uh, tasters. And this is just on the tasting results first, because, and we'll talk about why I don't think that these are the interesting part of the experiment. But they had 35 total tasters. Of the 35 uh, total tasters, 15 were able to correctly identify which beer had been, uh, which was the different beer in the triangle testing, uh, which actually puts it below the point of significance because we would need 17 in order mm-hmm. to get it uh, a significant finding. Now, so that means, okay, great, our, our tasters couldn't tell the difference between the two beers reliably. And I'm okay with that because, again, to go back to the point of what we were talking about, I consider this to be more of a uh, of a technique for production, and is there a difference with the the production? So, what we see coming out almost invariably, I think, with each of the uh, each of the experimenters, and I'm just going to pull the, uh, pull up the notes here real quick. We see that they all had the same sort of reaction where they actually were seeing differences between uh, the fermentation performance uh, right. too. Um, to the point where, uh, all of them, uh, are basically going, huh, I guess maybe this is how I should do it. Uh, Marshall, you're the real um, outlier here, buddy. But (laughs) yeah, um, I, I, I think, uh, I I think the best experiment, uh, the best results that we had were from people going, I'm really, really surprised that this made a difference. I'm fascinated. I, 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 right. the, obviously this is the first I've seen of your guys's data, the Igor's data at least. And, uh, he, and, and hearing about that just absolutely, I, I thought everyone would experience what I did, but 
I, and I have no, I have no good excuse. I have no good. The beers both tasted exactly the same. The obvious answer uh, is you suck uh, as a brewer. Generally enjoyed by everyone who drank it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I, <laughs> we've all we've all well, known that. Yeah. The yeah. I'm, okay, I'm only at right. I'm only at batch 488. Um, I, I've still got like 22 yeah, I mean, more to, to go. Give, before uh, I'm give good, me an idea. So. Look at yeah. <laughs> some of these results more uh, more fully, like uh, Jason Mundy's results. Uh, he he probably had the most dramatic split other than Jeremiah, where after 11 days, his airlock batch was still sitting at uh, 1020, and his non-airlock batch was sitting at 1004. Yeah. Uh, and we see we see that with the, the other ones where eventually all the all the other experimenters got it got the airlock batch down, but uh, which I think really drives home the point that you know okay at the end the fermentation characters were going to taste relatively the same but it took them more time. So do we know, know. do we know if yeah. any of the Igors uh, did the kind of temp thing that Marshall did where they just totally jacked it up uh, or did they do the slow rise like Jeremiah? Um, no, I'm trying to see. Uh, looking at the results, I uh, Matt Yoakum uh, specifically notes doing uh, a rise. And holding holding the temperatures using a heat wrap, and he got them up to, uh, uh, well, okay, he he's using communist uh, units, twenty five point five C. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. So so, I mean, so that's close that's to what warm. Marshall um, was doing. Yeah, and and that's fine. I mean, I think uh, I think that's that's absolutely dandy uh, for uh, our American listeners uh, in freedom units. Twenty five point five C is uh, seventy seven point nine Fahrenheit. So not not as hot, uh, as but yeah, no, not not as hot. But uh, again, I I tend to think heat gets overplayed. Uh, when I I did my big yeast strain experiment uh, five six years ago now, uh, I did a batch with five sixty five uh, unheated with a natural rise, and I did a batch of five sixty five where I basically slapped a heat wrap around the damn thing and uh, pushed it to eighty five degrees right from the bat. Don't do that. That's a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> I actually, I think I read that somewhere that you did that. And I, yeah, I that, intentionally avoided it for that reason. That's in the that's in the saison guide, uh, yeah. a strain guide. If you uh, that I have on the Maltos Falcons webpage that we'll link in the episode. But yeah, really, don't do that one because that's that just makes a bad right. beer. <laughs> well, so so I should say. Um, just going over my notes here. I, I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier that I raised the ambient to 90 degrees. The right. warmest the beers ever got was about 87 degrees before I started cold crashing, which is, that's, that's the warmest I've ever brought a beer up to. Uh, but it was, I mean, at 87 degrees, by that time, the attenuation was what, 85, 90% done. So. All right. But now, uh, but now looking through what we have since, uh, no. I think we we're all in agreement that the P value for, you know, whether or not the tastes are different is probably not the interesting piece out of this experiment. But to me, it's, we had Definitely. five different yeah. runs of the same experimental approach, right? Between the three Igors, Jeremiah and, and Marshall. And of those five, four of them saw actual differences between the fermentation characteristics. And Marshall screwed it up. No, no. Mar Marshall's right. the outlier. Uh, <laughs> so to me, that says, Hey, that's, that's actually kind of meaningful. Yeah. Um, so, so Marshall, uh, based on the fact I think so that too. Yeah. so many other people have uh, experienced different results than you did, is this something you may revisit? Uh, poten potentially, yeah. I, you know, the thing is, I, I said I don't make much Saison, but I, 
um, I almost open ferment solely, at least for the first, I don't know, week or so of fermentation, regardless of the beer I'm making, whether it's a, you know, German Pilsner or American mm-hmm. Brown Ale, I just slap some uh, sanitized foil over the top and let it go. So in, t- in terms of practice, right. I, I'm actually not going to be changing anything because I kind of already do it. Um, re- revisiting the specifically how the, 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 the fermentation characteristics of, uh, the Cezanne DuPont strain or whatever that, that strain is. Um, I think, I think it deserves to be looked at again for sure. I'm not, I I can't say when I'm going to get back to it. Wait, you're you're, you're not running out of new experiments to try? Yeah. Yeah. Good Lord. But, but the, you know, the thing is, um, when it comes to, I, I think it's interesting to think about what we all presumed would be the case. And, you know, when I got done collecting data on this, I'd chat with the participants a bit and, and almost, ubiquitously there was this idea that oh come on you know an airlock's not going to create anywhere near enough pressure to have an impact on the yeast but the fact so many people uh seem to kind of share the experience of uh, a slower attenuation when there's an airlock on there seems to say something i mean that that's really i appreciate what jeremiah said in his interview where he mentioned uh, you know a lot of people object to the idea of oh you know it's the airlock generating back pressure and, you know, I'm not necessarily the world's most enamored of that particular explanation, but Jeremiah mentioned the, the other one that I think is possibly a culprit, which mm-hmm. is CO2 toxicity. Because if you watch how these, how people talk about yeah. stall, the stall always seems to be, okay, the beer stalls out and then it sits for a couple of weeks and then it comes back, which to my mind is enough time for you to lose CO2 out of solution. Yeah. And... And the yeast kind of comes back to life. So I don't know. Maybe it's CO2 toxicity. Maybe it's back pressure. Maybe it's something else. But uh, there definitely does seem to be a an effect here. And most importantly to me about this whole thing is I hope that this these sorts of results will encourage people to go and use these strains, these persnickety, finicky strains that everybody seems to avoid because oh, I don't want to have to wait 24 days in order to get my beer to be ready. And instead they use... A perfectly fine mm-hmm. yeast strain, which is the Y yeast thirty seven eleven, the French saison, which is a powerhouse. It does great things. Uh, it makes for some really interesting uh, base beer characteristics. But to my mind, it just doesn't deliver the saison punch that mm-hmm. I want. So I, I see a lot of people making some really sort of boring beers marketed as saisons because they're using thirty seven eleven. And having said that, I use 3711 a lot to do a lot of my hoppy saisons and to do my weird things like the clam chowder. Right. So in other words, hey, now you know how to use these strains. We think there is actually a thing. We hope that you give it another shot and give it a test. But don't avoid 3724 and 565 just because you think they're going to take forever. Just slap some foil over that bugger and see what happens. Yeah. I'm actually really curious to see what other... Uh, you know, what other less finicky yeast strains, how they respond. I mean, are we going to see, um, assuming that the majority of, of people, including myself who have done this, um, assuming that the majority experience is what is, what is typically going to be experienced by other people. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm, if I'm fermenting with O nine O, you know, an IPA and I throw a piece of foil over the top is it going to work a little bit faster than if i had an airlock i mean i've never it's, done it's a, a, a comparison like that i was gonna say i mean that's a good thing to test 
it's a good thing to test because I think, uh, you know, particularly with the, the number of strains that we have, even the American strains that are British in origin originally, I mean, we know that several of those British strains do much better with open fermentation than they do with closed fermentation. Right. I'm, yeah, so. I'm anxious to try it with, uh, with 1450 mm. to tell you the mm. truth. Uh, I can, I can get pretty good performance out of 1450. Yes. Hold on. Yes. Denny. What's 1450 oh, for the audience? Sorry. Why yeast 1450 Denny's favorite? <laughs> Thank you, Drew. Uh, and I, I, it's not, it's not like I get, uh, like royalties from saying that. But, uh, at any rate, <laughs> I wish <laughs> just from selling it. Yeah. So, uh, but basically, you know, I get, I, I get pretty sure. good performance out of that. It will generally chew through, uh, an average gravity beer in like three, four days. Uh, but what I want, so I'm not really expecting a huge performance difference, but I want to see if maybe it generates a flavor difference, uh, by doing that, but who knows? So let's, let's wrap this up here, guys. Uh, here's, here's my takeaway and you tell me if you agree with it. My takeaway from this is that if you're using the DuPont strain for a Saison, uh, whether you're using the White Labs version or the Y-East version, you will probably get better performance and an easier fermentation by doing an open slash foil over the fermenter type of fermentation than by using an airlock but it will not make a huge difference in the flavor of the beer. And the caveat on that first part is unless you're Marshall. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, my, I would say that you there, you know, the way I look at it is it's, it's added insurance. I mean, there seems to be some evidence supporting this notion that the, you know, the open fermentation with foil over the top of the, uh, of, of the carboy is uh, it's not going to work against you. And at the very least, uh, it's going to work, right. you know, to help you out and, and, uh, not work to avoid. I, I would stall. agree with that. And I would also, uh, reiterate my uh, recommendation that I think some of the most interesting saisons I've ever done have actually been with a pitch blend of both the Y East 3724 and the white labs 565. Interesting. So, so, so the, the, you, think, you perceive okay. slight differences in them, huh? Yeah, I do. And, you know, also, you know, people ask, Hey, you know, so DuPont has these wonderful square fermenters. Yeah, and you see attached to the square fermenters a very large bubbling airlock. Uh, why don't they experience this problem? And I usually argue that it's because if you look at the yeast that DuPont's using, they are using, uh, at least in theory, something that has at least two strains of yeast and one strain of bread. Hmm, interesting. So they may have additional uh, additional help in the fermenter that we're not getting by sort of our focus on uh pure monocultures yeah right we're, we're using very you know specific isolates of, of that strain and it's going to have it yeah, yeah so so it's like it's like we've all pointed out before uh what applies to commercial breweries does not necessarily apply to home brewers blasphemy yep <laughs> yeah. but again ladies and gentlemen brewers of all ages and stripes and and styles and archetypes please remember this now means that you have the tools in your hands to avoid the monstrosity that is the Saison stall followed by a pitch of USO5 <laughs> or 1056 to finish the damn thing out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Okay, guys, great discussion, cool experiment. Marshall, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. All right, now, and now we now we got to see what's the next thing that we're going to accidentally do <laughs> yeah, at the same time. Right. Let's talk about that yeah, later. Or, or <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, or maybe or maybe we, maybe we should actually try and do one for uh, yeah all together. Yeah, that would real actually plan. Oh boy. All right, guys. Thanks a bunch. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here, and we will be right back. Adios. So uh, those were about the most definitive results that we've gotten on an experiment uh, with our one notable outlier there, huh? Yeah, that one pesky outlier. <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry. We are actually going to be uh, revisiting this because we do want to spread the word a little bit more and actually try and figure out what happened with that one outlier. Um, and I've... I have to say, ever since we released that episode and we started talking about this, I've seen more and more people pick up on the idea of doing open fermentation with your Saison strains and more and more people reporting back positive results. Yeah, that's so, what I was going to say too, man. Everybody who has tried this so far has had really, really good luck with it and uh, has reported that it has really kind of gotten them past the DuPont yeast uh, hump. So yeah, uh, don't, don't fear the DuPonts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here and listen to some more messages from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll be talking to our lab expert, Dana Garvis, who uh, analyzed some beers for us. And then on to Mr. Glenn Tinseth, who wrote the hop formula that we pretty much all use. So please stick around. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops, formerly known as YCH Hops, is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest, with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is thrilled about the release of their new innovative product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased brew house yield. Visit yakimachief.com to learn more. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. 
So hey, welcome back. It's time for another piece of the lounge. And in this particular case, what we're going to talk about is what we've been referring to as the IBU is a lie. You know, we all in this modern day and age of IBUs, I mean, well, one, what does the IBU even matter anymore in this day of hazy IPAs? <laughs> but the IBU, you know, everybody's always had this notion of, okay, it means this certain thing. And it turns out we decided we wanted to dig into it and see well, does it actually mean what we think it means? Most of us use some sort of software to uh, calculate our brews, and one of the things the software tells us is how many IBUs to expect in the beer. But we started wondering if maybe that was really accurate or not. And about that time, uh, I was on the road down in Arcata, California at a function there, and I ran into Glenn Tinseth, who wrote the IBU calculation formula that most of us end up using. Uh, and we started talking, and uh, it just became apparent that this was a great experiment to do. And as part of the experiment, uh, we had all the beers that our Igors made analyzed for IBUs. We'd started off with hops uh, supplied by good old Nico Lukoff and had them analyzed at YCH, now Yakima Chief. And so we knew where we were starting from, and when we got the uh, final beers analyzed, we were just surprised to see that they could be off by, what, like 30 or 40% from the predicted IBUs. Absolutely. It was a, it was a pleasure to actually have Dana help us, you know, get those numbers down. So yeah, really, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll just give her a quick plug here. If any of you guys need to uh, have your beer analyzed for anything, and I, she's really, really competent to do just about any kind of analysis, check out OregonBrewLab.com and Dana will uh, help you out. So, uh, Kick back and listen to this and uh, be amazed as we were. We've made our way over to the lab, and it is time to finally talk about the results of our IBU experiment. Uh, we've been we've been telling you this was coming for a long time, and uh, we just kind of had to coordinate things so we could get Glenn in on discussing it, and we finally did. So we are ready to drop the results on you. <laughs> right. Anything you want to say before we get into the interview? Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, that I was really excited that we managed to pull this one off. And just as a reminder to everybody, yeah, none of this would have been possible without the support of Nico from NicoBrew.com, who provided us the hops. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But also uh, our sponsors at the AHA, who also helped sponsor out some of the costs of this and made this thing a possibility. So, yes, and especially you, Igors, we really, really appreciate all the effort that you guys went to to brew all these different beers and pack them up and send them off. Um, it, it's just, uh, what can I say? We, we love you, man. Yeah, yeah it, it, trust me, folks, without our Igors uh, being as awesome as they are, none of this happens because... This is a lot of work. Yeah, and let me just also reiterate our thanks to Nico at uh, NicoBrew.com uh, for providing the hops for this and for uh, getting them sent off to YCH to have them tested before they went out. Uh, you're awesome, dude. Thanks again. So uh, we're going to start off this uh, little segment by playing an interview that I did with Dana Garvis, the owner of Oregon Brew Lab here in Eugene. She does... Uh, beer analysis for both commercial breweries and home brewers and uh, agreed to help us with our uh, experiment. So I talked to her uh, about her background, her lab, 
and uh, exactly how she was going to test the beers. We'll also have a video of the process that she went through uh, on our website, so you can uh, check that out also. It's so, actual uh, science. <laughs> yeah, really. Actual, real science, not citizen science, from a real scientist. So uh, sit back, relax, uh, enjoy this interview with Dana, and we'll be back in a few minutes. I am here at Oregon Brew Lab talking to Dana Garvis, the Oregon Brew Lab scientist. Founder. <laughs> Founder. Accountant. Uh, yeah, chief cook and bottle washer. Marketing manager. Yeah, et the cetera, whole thing. Well, thanks for your time today, and thanks for uh, analyzing the beers for us for our experiment. So why don't you talk a little bit about your background and yeah. how you ended up here with your own lab? Yeah, um, um, well, I got my degree in chemistry at U of O um, and immediately went into industry uh, testing water, which um, was very boring. Um, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of exciting stuff about water, especially wastewater or stormwater. You're dealing with some pretty nasty, nasty stuff, um, stuff you don't want to drink for sure. And uh, that lasted for about six months before I was ready to move on and find a different line of work um, and I was browsing Craigslist saw an ad for a brewing chemist and I thought I like beer I'm a chemist <laughs> and it has water in it it has water <laughs> I'm very versed in quality control and uh, so I kind of I was like well there's not very many breweries this is in 2006 mm -hmm. um, you know there's not very many oh I'm sorry 2010 there's not very many breweries in Eugene and so I looked on all their web pages to see who's hiring for right. this position. So I applied to um, Ninkasi's posting via Craigslist, via their uh, online, their website posting, and then I also went in and dropped off a resume in person. Mm -hmm. So I was very, very adamant, I want this job and you're going to give it to me. <laughs> um, and like most people that work at Ninkasi, I didn't think that I had gotten the job. Um, and even when I first got there, when they were like, yeah, come in, we want to talk to you one more time. Um, and everyone was talking to me like, hey, like, congratulations. And I was like, oh, did, did I get the job? Is that, is that me? And they're like, oh, yeah, sorry, we forgot to mention. You got it. <laughs> so um, I spent four years, a little under four years at Ninkasi. Uh -huh. um, I built their laboratory twice, once when I first got there, and then a second time when they did their rebuild or their mm -hmm. remodel in 2012. Um, and I also spearheaded their sensory program. And when their sensory program got too big for me to handle, because I was doing both the chemical side and the human side of beer testing, mm -hmm. um, we hired someone else from Firestone to come in, and that's Jared Clark, uh, to come in and take over the sensory part. Um, and basically spent four years learning about beer, learning about beer chemistry, working on my own palate. When I started, I was blind to diacetyl. Now I am not, <laughs> which is really, well, it isn't great um, because before I could drink bad beer and not yeah, know. Right. But now, now I can tell. I've, I've found that I have a hard time tasting it, but I can always feel that it. That mouthfeel, yeah. that slickness That's right. is a huge key for me. And yeah. it's one of the first time, it's that first indication, wait, maybe I should pay attention. <laughs> like something else is not right. Um, and so that slickness is what initially got me starting to identify diacetyl. And if you drink it enough, if you work and practice enough, 
you can get rid of those blind spots. It just yeah. takes a lot of dedication and drinking not great beer. You have to know what you don't know right. so that you can find it. Exactly, exactly. It's very zen, I guess. It is a little bit, it is. Um, you know, but a little drunk. <laughs> so then what led you to set up your own lab? Yeah, so um, at Ninkasi, I was the scientist that did the yeast for ground control, their space yeast. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when you're in a company like Ninkasi and you do something like shoot a rocket full of yeast into space, collect it, and then brew a beer out of it, there's not a whole lot of upward movement beyond that. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, how, how do you top that? And that was sort of when I had the inklings of Brew Lab coming. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I really started to notice was I opened up the Ninkasi lab to other brewers. I said, hey, if you need anything tested, let me know. Uh, Widmere does this up in Portland. Mm -hmm. I think Breakside does it also. Um, OSU does it for the Corvallis breweries. And so I was like, you know, all these people are trying to get testing, but no one, but there's not really a solid place to go. You can go to White Labs, right. but you're going you're gonna to pay high dollar for that. Um, and I just got flooded flooded with samples from everywhere, not just Oregon, not just Eugene. <laughs> um, and the big wake-up call, the really big one, was a small brew, brew pub in Michigan had somehow made a growler its way all the way to Eugene to wow. get tested. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Um, and that was pretty much the point. Right. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. Uh, leaving Ninkasi was one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do because... I mean, it's just a family. It's sure. A, you know, it's a family. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, you know, not so mafia-esque, but it's, right. very, it's very interconnected, and it's a cushy job. Mm -hmm. You know, the great benefits, um, fun place to hang out. It doesn't necessarily feel like work. Right. So leaving was very scary, but um, I had a lot of support. Um, other, other people within the Ninkasi uh, family had also left to pursue kind of what they were already doing, mm -hmm. but for a more uh, consultation side. And so I left, started Brew Lab, got a loan for my workhorse, the Anton Parr. Right. Um, and have been actually successful ever since. Oh, congratulations. That is so <laughs> and, cool you know, to hear. My, yeah, my big um, mark for this is, you know, after my very first year in business, Brew Lab netted $27. <laughs> yeah, but you're positive. I know. I know. I ran a business for 30 years and only did that once or twice. You know, and, uh, and that, that felt real good. Cool. That, um, and I have over, now I'm at over 120 clients nationwide. I have one home brewer in Canada, so I can say I'm international. <laughs> and multi-neighborhood corporation. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's been... Awesome. I oh. mean, I really, you know, people are like, oh, you must have a really good job. I have the best job. I get to hang out with brewers. I get to hang out with some of the most down-to-earth people who really care about their product. Mm -hmm. And people who come to me care about their product. Right. Um, there's someone who really wants to make sure their quality is nailed down. Sure. They really want to make sure their alcohols and IBUs are accurate on their labels. And I think that that's a really good mark of a great brewery is someone who's, who's seeking out ways to improve. Right. Right, they so. care. Yeah. So that's sort of my, my background. That's, that my is so story. cool. That is so cool. I'm, I'm really happy to hear stories like that, uh, especially people who succeed in the brewing industry without opening a brewery. It's uh, hard. 
Uh, it's real hard, as you may know. Yeah, it is. I mean, Drew and I kind of say that we were probably the only two home brewers in the world who have absolutely no interest in ever opening a brewery. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, no thanks. Why ruin a great yeah. hobby? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. So tell me a little bit about what you're going to be doing with these beers. You're going to be analyzing them for IBUs yes. for us. And what's the process for doing that? So what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to acidify a little bit of this beer. And what that does is it makes the humulones in there and the isohumulones mm -hmm. in there um, ready to move around. Mm -hmm. So it sort of breaks them away from the rest of the beer. Okay. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to add an organic solvent mm -hmm. on top of that uh, called isooctane or 224-trimethylpentane. Um, and shake it up real good. Right. Um, and if you want, I can actually take a video of it emulsifying. Oh, would you really? Yeah. That would be so yeah. cool. We'll put okay. it on the website yes. for people. Perfect. I'll do that. So then I emulsify it, which means I'm going to take these two phases that are um, unable to combine, right. kind of like salad um, <laughs> oil and vinegar. Oil and, vinegar. Yeah. and what I'm going to do is I'm going to shake it or mess with it so hard that it's going to become one substance, mm -hmm. and that's called an emulsification. Um, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to break that emulsification by spinning the samples around really fast in a centrifuge, mm -hmm. um, pulling out the beer, but leaving all of those isohumulones in the solution, the okay. organic solution. From that solution, I can put that into a spectrometer, shoot a laser through it, mm -hmm. and the more humulones it is, there are, right. the less amount of that laser is going to make it through the sample. And so we can determine the quantity right. of isohumulones in the beer sample. How cool. It is cool. That's very neat. I, I spent my first year of college as a chemistry major. Okay, so some And of that, I retain just yeah. enough to have a, yeah. some inkling of what you're talking about yep. there. That is and that. so one of the issues that um, we're having in the professional brewing, the, co the commercial side, not professional, that's, that's a little rude maybe, but on the commercial side of brewing is that um, isohumulones don't necessarily mean your perceived bitterness, right. which I think is what you guys are sort of testing uh -huh. here, is to see you know, what's the difference between our IBUs and what we are actually tasting. Right. Because your perceived bitterness is, is including other things other than isohumulone. Right. Yeah, and one of the things that we're looking at is like, you know, we, when Drew put all the recipes together for mm -hmm. people to brew, he used Beersmith to calculate, yes. you know, the expected So does he, IBUs. what's the, do you use Tinset, 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 I, or? I, I, I mean, I'll have to ask him, but I think he did use Tinset. Okay. Uh, I got to meet Glenn a year yeah? or so ago. Oh, very I cool. was down, at, uh, down in Arcata, California for a big uh, beer festival, and uh, he teaches at Humboldt State. And came up to me and uh, and introduced himself and uh, we're actually hoping I've corresponded with him several times since then to tell him what we're doing mm -hmm. with this and uh, I, we're hoping to actually have him on the show to help us analyze the results oh, that we cool. get. Oh, cool! Very cool. So yeah. So but what one thing that that we're looking at is the variation in the results mm -hmm. because as we know people's processes and mm -hmm. you know the way they brew and stuff like that is going to affect this oh, yeah. so what we want to do is find out when people use brewing software to you know calculate how many IBUs they're getting mm -hmm. in their beer are they really yeah you know right. when it, when is an IBU not an IBU kind of thing <laughs> yeah um, and one of the things that I find um, you pick up extra IBUs is when you're not able to cool down your wort mm -hmm. 
before fermenting. Right. Um, you're going to still be isomerizing those humulones and right. going to be adding. And, and that's a, that's an experiment that we have uh, scheduled for the future. Is you know because so many people are into whirlpool mm -hmm. hops these oh, days. Yeah. What we want to try and do is somehow get some idea of how many IBUs what your you're, you're picking up there, mm -hmm. you know, as you whirlpool yeah. those hops, say like at 160 or 180 or yeah. whatever. Well, and that's an, another good point is if your gravity is higher, those sugars are going to inhibit that isomerization. Right. And so, you know, the higher gravity, your final product, the less amount of IBUs you're actually going to And you have touched on a very interesting thing. Um, the, and the main reason I was in correspondence with Glenn mm -hmm. is because I had talked to John Palmer, who has a theory um, that comes from Tom, somebody up at OSU. Shellhammer? Yes. Shellhammer? Yes. Yeah. That it's not the gravity and the sugars themselves, but the increased amount of proteins from a higher gravity wort. I would not be surprised. Coat the hops and cause the reduced utilization. So it's not the gravity per se, it's the the other things that happen when you have a higher yeah. gravity beer. Interesting. Uh, Glenn doesn't buy that at all. Well, you know what we could do um, is put on the horizon me because I do have the ability to test for protein. Oh, really? We could see if there's You're some on. sort of yes. correlation between higher gravity beers with protein and, and hops. Yeah, that's right. We could we could brew the same wort at two different gravities. Yes. And then look at the protein levels in each one of those yep. in terms of and hop And then determine IBUs yeah. afterwards. Oh, you are on. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. Oh, this is oh, this is cool, Dana. <laughs> we'll have to when I, next time I see you, I will bring you one of our official Igor pins. We have these Ooh. little pins made for people who help us with our testing. And you have just earned yours with yes. those ideas. Oh, good. So. Yeah, well, and like I said, I, um, I often feel like in the uh, commercial side of brewing, um, there's sort of this disconnect between... Um, being in production and then being a hobbyist or a home mm -hmm. brewer. And I do feel like there's much more in common that we all have as a home brewer, as a commercial brewer, um, than they let on. Yeah, right. And I feel like home brewers kind of get the short end of the stick occasionally. And so I am actively trying to <laughs> engage with home brewers because they're a really big part of our community. Yeah, well, I mean, you look at how many commercial brewers came from the homebrew community. You look at how many beer trends get pulled into the commercial world yes. from the homebrew world. Yep, absolutely. Okay, well, we have been talking to Dana Garvis here at Oregon Brew Lab, and uh, we will be getting the results for these beers she's analyzing for us. And we'll also post a link to her website. She does a lot of other kinds of things besides just IBU analysis. And uh, if you're looking for a place to get your own homebrew analyzed, I highly recommend you get in touch with Dana and send it in to her. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. I'm so excited to work with you guys in the oh, future, we, too. We are, too. I just love your ideas. So it's going to be very cool. Yeah, let's keep it up. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Cheers. All right. That was Dana Garvis from Oregon Brew Lab talking about the analysis of the IBU beers. 
Uh, and uh, big, big thanks to Dana for helping us out here. And uh, she had some great suggestions for future experiments. So I'm sure that we're going to be hearing from her again. And uh, we're going to put a link to Oregon Brew Lab on our website. And if any of you guys out there want to have your beers tested for any number of things, uh, I would recommend you contact Dana and uh, have her do it for you. Yeah, I'm going to say I love the fact that we have now entered the time of brewing history where you, I, any joker with, you know, just a couple of dollars and some beer can actually get access to some big time tests and, you know, get a better idea of exactly what it is that we're doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, her lab is in a garage attached to her house, but that doesn't mean that it's not a real lab. She had some serious equipment there, and she knows what to do with it. There you go. All right. Well, hey, and now, of course, now, of course, we get to the to the big the the big part of the episode because this was the part that actually took us the longest to arrange. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're very very happy to be able to talk. With, you know, while we were looking here going, hey, you know, we got all these IBU numbers and how do we make sense of them? And, you know, what the heck is an IBU anyway? And how did these calculations come about? It naturally occurred to us that, well, maybe we ought to ask the guy who, well, made the formula that we all use. Yeah, I was uh, down in Arcata, California a couple years ago for the uh, Humboldt Homebrew Fest. Great event. And uh, I was sitting there selling books, and a guy came up and introduced himself to me, and it was Glenn Tinseth, and I was thrilled. It's a guy that uh, I've, I've read his writings, I've used his formula for years. It was it was great to finally meet him. So uh, we called him up and asked him to comment on the findings and uh, talk a little bit about how he developed the formulas and his background. So, go grab yourself another beer, unless you're driving, and uh, we're going to listen to uh, the interview that we did with Glenn talking about uh, our hop experiment and uh, his hop experiments. Okay, it is finally time to announce the results of our IBU experiment, and uh, we have a very special guest with us today in order to do that. Uh, you've probably heard his name before. Uh, we're talking to Glenn Tinseth, the man behind the hop calculations that you probably use. Hey, Glenn, thanks for joining us today. Ah, it's fun to be here. <laughs> Good. I hope you'll be saying that uh, 15 or 20 minutes from now. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, background and experience with home brewing? Okay, um, I started home brewing, uh, I guess, mid '80s here in Humboldt County. Um, the first beer we did was a, a stout, and we entered it in the uh, Humboldt County Fair. And at that time, you could watch people's faces as they tasted your beer, and Three out of the four judges refused to taste it, and the third <laughs> tasted it and spit it out. So, <laughs> feedback. Yeah, and, really. And, and yet you hard. continued. <laughs> yeah, well, what that did is it accelerated the switch to all-grain brewing, um, and from then on, it just was, was easy to continue because everything turned out really well, and uh, and it was cheap way cheaper than extract, and that was the perfect um, combination of things, good taste and cheap um, for a college student. So do you still brew these days? 
I haven't homebrewed in ages, but during the summer, I'm a fill-in brewer for Mad River Brewing Company in Blue Lake, California. So whenever they have someone on vacation or just need an extra hand, um, I'm trained up on the system, and they can call me. And uh, my wife says it's not really a job. She says it's beer camp. (laughs) It is a job. (laughs) Yeah, she should try it. So instead of substitute teaching, you're a substitute brewer. Yeah, it's kind of, I, you know, I do a bunch of different things. I teach at the university, teach chemistry, and I also have my own tax uh, consulting business. About to wow. go into high gear here. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet, man. That's a, that's a real renaissance man kind of thing. <laughs> well, it kind of balances. I teach full-time in the fall and just a tiny bit in the spring and when the you know, when the, the tax season's hitting. Uh-huh. And then summers for, are free for both of those businesses, so that leaves me time to go and brew. Okay, that sounds great, man. Oh, there you go. Well, now, I guess here's the the obvious question. You know, I think most homebrewers these days, you know, if they they know your name because it's sitting there in all those uh, recipe formulators that we use, you know, Beersmith and ProMash, and, and it's right there, just that little button that says, which hop formula do you want to use? So I guess really the question is, what made you go and decide, I want to have my hop formula? Okay. Um, this goes back to... Um when we were poor and trying to pay for our mortgage on our farm. And uh, we, my wife and I both started little businesses. And the business I started, since I was in the middle of Oregon hop country at that time, was to <clears throat> take cops, vacuum seal them, and uh, sell them um, mail order. Uh, at that point, Fresh Hops was the main hops supplier in Corvallis, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, no, no fault of his, but he was sending them out in Ziploc bags. And uh, I, coming from, you know, working on my PhD in chemistry, knew that oxygen was the enemy. And so I got one of those cheap uh, food savers from Costco and modified it to use less expensive bags than the ones you have to buy for it. And um, published a little uh, uh, catalog. And at that time, most of the online folks were using a forum called rec.crafts.brewing. Oh, yes, I remember that. Kind of dating ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> and so I kind of gently got information out, and people started writing for that catalog. And I decided I wanted to have not just a catalog, but a lot of content. And so I wrote a few articles. I was writing for Brewing Techniques at the time as well, and uh, included this hop research I had been doing on the side. Um, and, you know, just put it out there, and then it just sort of took off. I mean, this is 94, I think. And I had, you know, spent half the time when I should have been working on my dissertation in the library reading articles on uh, hop usage and utilization. And luckily I was able to get a lot of data from there and also from the brand new brewing program at Oregon State. They dumped a bunch of data on me and then I did quite a few brews um, wherein I traded work in the hop lab, the USD hop lab there, in exchange for using their instruments to do some testing. And that's how it came about. It was kind of like a value-added proposition for my hop business. Um, and then it had a life of its own, obviously. Well, and it definitely goes to show that homebrewers have always kind of been 
eager to have more of that scientific information because uh, obviously I think right now we're in sort of a renaissance of that as well between you know us here on this podcast and uh, Brewlosophy and a couple of others who are out there trying to do homebrew science, but uh, you had the actual tools back in the day, it sounds like. Well, also, most of the people on those early forums had internet access, which meant you were most likely either a defense employee or a university uh, student or employee. And so lots of engineers and scientist types we're really pushing, you know, pushing the limits of what was out there. And frankly, what was out there was Rager um, and a totally wrong uh, hopulization curve that, you know, just kinetically couldn't be. Um, and that's one of the first thing reasons I tackled it because I knew it wouldn't be that S-shaped curve that he had. So uh, my question is, how did you make the beer that you analyzed to get these numbers? Uh, was were these just like you know small samples you you put together in the lab, or did you actually brew batches? Or how did that work? Yeah, I, I did full batches in my you know it was a Sankey keg on a on a jet burner outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, although most of the data came from the literature. I mean, I had data from Asahi and Guinness and Sierra Nevada. And like I said, all the data from the OSU Hop Lab. I just brewed my own homebrew batch to confirm that there was no differences between these big commercial scale brews and you know my little ten gallon brewery. Um, once I had the the curve that I had put together, I wanted to make sure that it matched from a homebrewer scale. And so I I basically would do a ten gallon batch, <clears throat> take samples all along the way you know, five minutes, ten minutes, you know, and then do another one at a different gravity, just enough to confirm what I was seeing in the published literature. And you ended up with a lot of beer to drink after that, too, huh? Yeah, yeah I, had, uh, I had lots of friends. <laughs> well, that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> Go figure. That's really interesting to me that the differences between your homebrew system and uh, the commercial systems that the results you were looking at were drawn from uh, that they're really were so consistent between the two. Well, it, you know, it's the shape of the curve that's consistent. Um, you can there's a couple of factors in my equations that you can change, and I think they'll take into account things like boil vigor or uh, kettle geometry, right? Um, that sort of thing. Um, and so the numbers might rise or fall, but the the utilization. Um, geometry of the curve should stay about the same got it well i was gonna say i think maybe we ought to take a step back and and walk people through like when we're talking about these calculations what exactly the curve is and what the various factors are that you saw affecting the creation of the uh, or sorry the various factors that you saw that ended up with these numbers that we now have Right. I think most of us would guess how much you, how many ounces of hops you add and how long you boil them for are probably going to be the biggest. Um, most of the literature put as number two uh, the, the gravity of the boil. Um, and so those are the ones I stuck with just because you can just start listing things off and not stop for five minutes of other things that might um, you know, pH, just go on and on and on. But those are the two big things. How, how much hops you added and how long you boiled them for and what was the uh, average gravity of the boil. So let's uh, let's get into talking about our experiment now. Um, 
the purpose of this really was uh, for us to try and get a handle on uh, how accurate the estimates homebrewers are getting of uh, the IBUs in their beer. And uh, in order to do that, let me just run through the basic experiment here for our audience. We uh, we started off by getting some hops from uh, Nico Lukoff at Nico Brew. Uh, Nico, before we sent them out to people to brew with, sent them over to YCH Hops to get them analyzed so that we would know exactly what the AA level of those hops was at that moment before they went out. Uh, all these different brewers brewed a pale ale, an IPA, and a double IPA, sent samples back to me, and uh, we had them uh, analyzed here in uh, a lab in Eugene and uh, compared those to the predicted results uh, in the recipes. Is that about it, Drew? Did I forget anything? Well, and then also a portion of the beer was sent down to my neck of the woods, where we then did hedonistic testing. Right. And we had we had tasters rank both their perceived bitterness and the perceived enjoyment that they had for that particular beer. And I should mention also that uh, our uh, our lab person, Dana Garvis at Oregon Brew Lab, uh, is also a trained sensory analyst. And so uh, she made her own guesses about what the IBUs were in some of these beers, which were very interesting. So uh, time to get into the results. Yeah. So and we provided Glenn with a copy of uh, the results that we had from everybody. Now, when we did the calculations, uh, all three of the recipes were effectively the same recipe, just scaled up in terms of uh, amount of ingredients. So like the pale ale was 10 pounds of uh, domestic two row, one pound of Munich malt and a half a pound of crystal malt for a five and a half gallon batch. Uh, and then it was bittered with CTZ, uh, had additions of Centennial and Cascade in order to you know round out the hopping profile and make it very kind of traditional American craft brew hopping. Uh, and then the double IPA and the IPA were the same gen general bill, just bumped up in strength. So when we did the calculations, according to the things that we have out there, uh, it, all out of uh, my Beersmith software that I was using, the American Pale Ale uh, calculated out when we used uh, Glenn's formula to about 32 IBUs. And when we stepped through the eight entries that we had Dana uh, measure for us, uh, they ranged uh, actually i think a f uh, a fairly wide margin uh lowest ibu measurement that we had was actually 20 ibus and the highest one that we saw in the pale ale was 43 ibus and the prediction uh, was uh, for uh 31.8 so there's quite a range there yep and so and when you average out all the measurements it comes in it comes into about uh 32 ibus which is dead on what the calculation said it was supposed to be yeah. That's averaged across the eight batches. And that's that's when you average them, though. But, man, there's some real outliers yep. there. Yeah, yeah well, I and noticed it's 34% um, on the high end and 25% on the low end. I mean, that's that's a huge swing. Yeah, yeah, it really is, man. I mean, you know, and we have, we have one guy who got 43 IBUs out of a prediction of uh, about 32, and one guy who got 20. So... What do you think, Glenn? What what could account for that kind of swing? Um, I, I would bet it's um, maybe boil vigor. I mean, are we talking flowers or pellets here? These were all pellets. Okay. Well, that throws my calculations out the window. I was just lucky that that came <laughs> even close. Um, 
no one and none of the data I, I used had anything to do with pellets. Um, oh, so now that's so that's I, interesting. I have a huge disclaimer there that you're, you're on your own. <laughs> now, yeah, well, see, that's, now that's interesting, though, because I think almost everybody that I know of blindly uses these formulas, and almost all of us use pellets these days. So, yeah, hmm. it is. It, back back in the day, you know, pellets were definitely not the quality of what they are today. Um, it's a, it's a huge difference between what we used to be able to get and what you can get now. Wow. Well, that, that's that's in very, very interesting, and I'm sure that that's something that uh, a lot of people out there didn't know, just like we didn't know that either. So, so I guess... That, also, you know, pellets disperse so quickly, and there's no real uh-huh. worry as much about boil vigor and or, or protein coating. You know, when flowers get coated, that's kind of the end of their being... And dissolving the humulones and but pellets are dispersed immediately and uh, so I would I would bet the differences here are probably boil bigger and kettle geometry okay yeah. and well and looking through the results as we as we step through the other beers you know in the IPA you know the formula for, uh, your formula predicted out at 58 IBUs uh, roughly and there we saw a very similar sort of spread where we saw one person with 37 IBUs measured and I think we our highest was uh, sixty six. Uh, yeah. And, and then in again, the double that's a thirty percent spread up and down. Yeah. 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 Well, and then in the double IPA, which is the one that I figured would be the one that showed the wonkiest results, uh, I think that actually bears out because uh, the double IPA had a predicted IBU of seventy five point nine, I believe, and on the low side of that one. We had three scores all the way down in the 40s. We had a 44, a 45, and a 46. And then the highest was a 71. So nobody actually topped up to the, or went up and over what the calculation was, which kind of makes some sense, right? Because as you're getting out there along the gravity uh, bounds, the curve is going to become more and more uh, off. And so it was really interesting to see that there were also trends where you were saying, okay, well, it's probably, you know, some of it's boil vigor or kettle geometry. And, you know, we had consistently the brewers who were on the lower side in each of these categories were the same brewers. So if we had somebody brewing the exact same uh, beer, all three beers, we saw each time that they would be on the low side. Um, Right. Where I think the one that cracks me up is one of our, uh, one of our brewers, and I don't know why, you know, his IPA came in at 43 IBUs uh, as measured. His double IPA, which has a lot more hops in it, came in as measured as 44 IBUs. <laughs> maybe he's just wow. like, maybe he's just like eating the hot pellets on the side, and not putting them into the beer. No, there you go. No, you're not. You're not supposed to chew the hops. They're supposed to go in the kettle. <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, this gets back to one of the things I often tell people who want to get down to the hundredth of the IBU. You know, you're going to get within 10% if you're lucky. And you mm-hmm. can see that we didn't necessarily even get within 10% on these three batches because um, some of them are off by 30-plus percent. Right. Um, so my main take-home message to brewers is just do what you do and be consistent. And if you use Rager or you use my method or Garrett's method, just be consistent Use your same boiler and your same pot, and any changes you make, take notes and see if you like it. Um, because the, at some level, the number becomes meaningless, right? Right. The, your, well, ta- your taste buds should be your guide. 
Which well, I was going to say, in, in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, and in a lot of ways, it seems like everybody talks about IBU, I think, because so many brewers are scientifically minded. They talk about, like, this number has an absolute meaning, right? You know, it's like Kelvin. And in truth, IBU is sort of a weird, kind of not really a real thing. It's just kind of a stakeholder, you know, something for you to kind of center around. Because I mean, nominally, IBU as measured in these in these anal- uh, analysis is, you know, the amount of absorption at X Y Z nanometers of light, you know, in a formula prepared in a certain sort of way, and that supposedly correlates to or that carries a close correlation to the amount of dissolved isoalpha acid. Now, of course, modern dry hopping throws that off, but that's a whole other story, which is why we didn't have people dry hop these. Um, well, but it really also, does. It, it, biggest peak where light absorbs for the thing you're looking at, but there's other things absorbing that same wavelength of light that aren't mm-hmm. hop-related. And so you, the IBU measures all the things that absorb that light, not just the thing we're interested in. And so it, it is affected by other things, too. <laughs> wow. You mean chemistry is not just like a simple, straightforward thing? Well, when we do basic research, we eliminate all these complications, you know, <laughs> like life. <laughs> you know, Assume you, that you have an elephant that's round and yeah, in a vacuum. You're, you're getting into the reason why uh, my experience as a chemistry major in college only lasted two terms, and then I switched to English. <laughs> what, one thing I found interesting is um, the sensory numbers that, uh, what was her name? I'm sorry. Dana? Dana. Uh-huh. Um, we're pretty spot on for the pale ale and the IPA, but really consistently higher than the IBU number for the double IPA. In all, in all of them but one, I think, her perceived bitterness was higher yeah. than the measured IBUs. I wonder if maybe that could have a, a bit of confirmation bias to it, you know? Uh, I mean, she's, yeah. she is trained to be able to recognize IBU levels, but maybe there's something about saying to yourself, uh, this is a double IPA, so it's got to be higher. And I'm not casting aspersions on Dana here no. by any means. Uh, no, yeah, she, she mouth, got a lot. Mouthfeel issues there and you, just straight alcohol issues. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I mean, and yeah, let's be fair. I mean, Dana, Dana got pretty close on a fair number of these and got way closer than I ever was. Oh, yeah, I know. Man. I, I, I could not have done it <laughs> yeah. at all. I saw her numbers and went, geez, man, that woman has some skills. Yeah, and, yep. and we'll have all this published uh, on the, the website when we get to it. But uh, I did think it was interesting that in you looking at her sensory bitterness, and how it tracks you're you're right that like the ipas she was pretty uh, pretty spot on and then when we get to the double ipas the numbers actually aren't really all that different away from the ip uh, the ipa levels you know even though the measured ibus are a little bit different right you know those are a little bit higher so it was kind of interesting that even moving up into the double ipa where you'd expect to kind of have a little bit of that confirmation bias of oh well you know this has to be hoppier you know the numbers were actually still fairly close to what she was pulling for the the ipas right right Right. So, Glenn, do you still have your website up? Yeah, I do. I mean, I haven't really maintained it. <laughs> well, but the, the basic info is there. Yeah, it's realbeer.com slash hops. 
Okay, great. And we'll we'll put a link to that on our website, too, so people can go uh, take a look at your work. There's, there's a lot of dead links there, but since it's kind of one of the early versions of a beer website, I've left them because it acknowledges some of those early uh, founders. In fact, I still have the code for the original hop calculator when it used to be a a CGI bin script that ran on the server, no. which completely, completely disallowed now. <laughs> but the C code is there if you want to steal it. Drew, yeah. I'm sure that being a programmer, you can appreciate that. Oh, yeah, no, but uh, I don't want to get anywhere near C these days. <laughs> it's well documented, though. <laughs> Comment Lies. Everywhere. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a well-documented C program that doesn't have a comment of the code <laughs> is the comment. <laughs> I, I, but I found JavaScript more. much more uh, uh, friendly when I switched over. <laughs> yeah. So, Drew, well, anything else we need to talk to Glenn about here? Well, yeah, I was going to say. So, Glenn, if you were trying to tackle uh, creating the curve and the formula again today. What do you think that you would uh, you would look for, and what might you change? I mean, we already talked about part of it is, you know, a good portion of your data is all based on whole hops and not on pellets, so uh, that right. seems like one obvious change. Sure, I, I would definitely do uh, work with pellets. I would probably uh, probably like to bring in some pH playing around um, in the boil and see what yeah. happens there because it's such a big factor in, in chemical reactions. Um, and, you know, boil vigor and kettle geometry, you can't really do that much about, and there's so many different variables that right. mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know where to go with that. But I would definitely track, maybe, you know, get jump on the bandwagon with everybody and look at protein levels. But I, I, I bet that protein tracks pretty well with gravity. Um, that would be my my initial guess. Yeah, you know, and I had... I had separate told, those out. Yeah, and I had told you that uh, John Palmer had been talking to uh, Tom Shellhammer up at OSU, and, and their theory is that it is protein levels that, that make a difference, although I, I have yet to see what kind of uh, evidence they have to back that up. Well, w one way to, to do an experiment here would be to track the unisomerized alpha acids and see how quickly they get into solution. Um, and then the protein effect is kind of irrelevant if it's, if it's a physical effect, because once those uh, unisomerized alpha acids are in solution, they just need to isomerize, and the protein's not going to get in the way of that. Um, but then if it takes a while, then maybe it is a blocking action by the protein. Right. I don't know. I'm just, I'm not a biochemist. What do I know? <laughs> Well, well, hey, you know, uh, it, it's something to look into, and, and maybe uh, we can get a hold of Tom and ask him about it, too. Well, That's and I'm kind of curious. It's so attractive to deal with the simple stages. You know, I'm a physical chemist, and kinetics is right, you know, down my alley. And uh, <laughs> I, the article you sent me recently that kind of confirm, confirms the shape of the curve made me very happy, because the whole time I was waiting to be proven a fraud for the last 20 years. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> well, uh, for, fortunately, everybody's uh, too busy enjoying their pints, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, here's a question that I have. So, obviously, when you were doing this, you know, IPA was still kind of a, you know, just a, a thing that some people would have. It wasn't, you know, three quarters of the market like it seems like it is today. Right. I'm, 
I'm wondering if we were if we were to look to you know trying to do a, mo- a modern update or more data for this, you know how how the performance of the curve would change, you know based on some of these sort of outrageous hopping techniques that people are doing and outrageous hop loads and and high gravities and whirlpool additions versus ten minute additions versus you know all these questions that people ask us like oh does it make a difference if you're if you're whirlpooling this particular way or if you add the hops in at twenty minutes. Um, I'd be really curious to see how all that would aff- uh, affect you know, the numbers that are coming out the same. Yeah, it's not like it's an on or off thing. It's the, the, the boil temperature isn't magic. I mean, if you're a couple mm-hmm. degrees below, you're still pretty much at boil temperature. Even if you're 10 degrees below, you're still getting isomerization. It, it, it's not an on or off switch. And so mm-hmm. it, it, it would be interesting to do some work on different temperatures of holding hops in the whirlpool or wherever. Or in a torpedo, you know, they they have all kinds of different ways where hops aren't boiled, but they're still mm-hmm. contributing bitterness. So it makes it much harder when you complicate things like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we we had an experiment that we had our Igors do not that long ago, where we had them try comparisons of hops held at in whirlpool at what was it, Denny? It was just one seventy versus one forty. I thought it was one sixty and one eighty, but. <laughs> It's a while back. I'd have to go look up the data on the website. Yeah, but uh, it, it was interesting to see because you had all these people saying, "Oh, well, you know, if you do the, if you do this other sort of way of doing it, then it's going to be more hop oils and less volatilization and less bitterness." And I think uh, if I'm remembering the the solutions or the outcome correctly, it was a little bit of a mixed bag where. We had some people going, oh, there's no difference, and we had other people going, well, you know, there's a, there's enough of a difference here that I'm going to keep doing it this way. Hmm, interesting. I, that's the, the, the getting back to consistency. You know, people have to decide on a method uh, that works for them and their brewery. That, that's what I always try to emphasize. And, again, you know, the numbers are interesting, especially if you can afford to get them analyzed. That's the best way. But uh, it just provides a... A benchmark, you know, a little, a little comparison that you can make. You know what I always oh. say is, uh, you don't drink the numbers, you drink the beer. <laughs> oh, by the uh, way, the package with these beers for me to taste has never arrived. Oh well, um, we'll take care of that. I'll get your address later. <laughs> actually, actually, I can do that, Glenn. So uh, stand by when we're done here, and I'll get. Uh, actually, I'll shoot you an email later and get get a shipping address and send them down to you, and you can try it yourself. Uh, you'll have some fun nights. I, I, I honestly was teasing, but I thought the more I look at these numbers, the more thirsty I get. <laughs> well, you know it's, what? It's funny how that works. Yeah, no, I, I, I would, I would love to send some down to you as a, as a thank you for your time. Hi, man, uh, because I can't drink them all. <laughs> yeah. Now, by the way, I went back and I looked up our uh, Whirlpool numbers. Yeah. Uh, the experiment was actually 170 degrees Whirlpool versus 120 degrees Whirlpool and see what the That's people got out of it. That's a pretty big difference, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the argument was, you know, if you hold it at 120, you'll get better hop aroma and whatnot. And when people did the iron triangle, when people did the iron triangle, that, <laughs> when people did the triangle test, we had, uh, let me see, we had six different uh, panels that we kept into the numbers because one of them had a sort of a outlier effect. And of those six, three showed significance and three didn't. So it was kind of a, a, a split bag in terms of whether or not people could even tell the difference between a beer that had had hops whirlpooled at 170 versus hops whirlpooled at 120. 
Yeah. No, you did an ABA test where two were the same and one was different. They had to pick the two that were the same. That is correct. They had to pick the one that was different. Yeah, the one that's different. The one that was different. The, the okay. inverse. Um, yeah, the inverse of it. Interesting. Plus, you have the complication of 120 being in the danger zone. Yeah. Bacterially, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, and yeah, I don't know if that's anything that uh, anybody would ever want to do as a regular thing because of that. But uh, yeah. we, we wanted to get a big spread at least for the test. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today. It has been a real pleasure talking to you, and man, I've learned a bunch of stuff. And I've learned that there's actually a man behind the behind the name on the formula. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, well, I, the, I learned the same thing at the homebrew festival here a couple of years ago when there was Denny sitting at one of the tables, and that we we introduced each other and finally placed a face to a name. Yeah, that's right, man. Uh, I was it was great to meet you. I'm so glad you came up and introduced yourself. Uh, and since you get up this way every once in a while, uh, let me know when you're coming, uh, and I'll buy you several beers. Okay. Yeah, just make sure that <laughs> like if he uh, gets you a beer, yeah, just make sure that if he gets you a beer, that he actually remembers to bring it to you. <laughs> yeah, right. <That's- laughs> All right. right, Glenn. Thanks once again for joining us, and uh, I'll uh, I'll shoot you an email and get your address and send some of these beers down for you. Oh, I would love that. Great. Thanks again, man. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Well, you know, it was really great to talk with Glenn. I, you know, you kind of think like, hey, you know, there is actually somebody attached to that name that we all see. You know. And to really kind of learn a little bit about what he was thinking when he was doing the, the formulas and, you know, all the research they had access to and all the tools they had as, at his, uh, disposal. So it suddenly makes sense why that formula has lasted for 20 years and is still used today. But I do think there are a couple big takeaways, uh, at least for me, I think, for everybody to go with. Uh, one is that that formula of his was designed for whole leaf hops and not pellets. Yeah, that that blew me away, man. It's like, oh, hmm, I wonder how relevant this is. Yeah, and then the other one is, of course, what I think the biggest lesson, and it plays right into that about uh, pellets versus whole, is at some point in time, you just have to kind of look at these numbers and treat them as your own relative scale. To know that on my system, doing things the way I do it, when I calculate something out that comes out to 60 IBUs, it tastes like this to me. And that this is a marker that you that you put down in, in your perceptual memory. And from that point, you swing around it. Like, I want something that's more bitter than that beer, so maybe I'll swing it up to a 70 or a 75. And you set down a new marker. I want something less bitter. Okay, I'll go for a 30. And that's really at even the craft beer level uh, until you get to the really big leagues and you have all the equipment to really drive home consistency. That's a lot of what you're going to be doing with your recipe design and your brewing. So more important than anything else, consistency in terms of your practice, consistency in terms of your calculation, and then use that to drive what a 60 IBU beer means to you. Yeah, that's that's true. And uh, Glenn said that he could hardly believe he was saying it, but basically it's you know the the taste that counts so uh that's what that's what you really want to go for get the beer to taste the way you like it then say okay i assume these are the ibus 
So uh, something else I wanted to mention is that uh, Dana is actually a trained sensory analyst also. Mm -hmm. So she went through these beers and tasted them and uh, made her guess at what the IBU levels were and did way better than I would ever do. So uh, we're going to put that data up on the website also so that you can uh, see in a spreadsheet what she thought that these beers were and uh, how close they were to reality. Yeah, I think they'll I think that will definitely be useful and kind of surprising and eye-opening. Yeah. And particularly given given that I mean one of my first memories that I remember having with a pro brewer about uh brewing and IBUs was having a conversation with John Mayer at uh at an AHA conference one year. And he asked me about a beer I made and I said, Oh, it's this. And it comes out to like, you know, 1063 OG and 75 IBUs, or actually, I think I said a hundred IBUs because of the beer. And he's like, okay, so that's about 60. And I was like, what? <laughs> turns out John was right. Yeah. Well, imagine that, huh? The guy who's been brewing for over half his life knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, that, that never so, happens. Yeah. Right. So, you know, what we saw was a really wide range of uh, of results here, and we talked about it a little bit with Glenn. But I think that uh, one of the things that uh, we didn't discuss was the impact that chilling might have made. And I, you know, we really didn't talk to the brewers about how they were chilling or anything else. But it's it's possible that. Uh, some of the late hop additions contributed more bitterness than others because of the way that uh, the beer was chilled. The chilling effect might have had a chilling effect, huh? It might have, but I'm also really curious about what was going on with the brewers that we saw that were consistently low. Yeah, right. Because Well, you know what? And and Glenn mentioned uh, boil vigor and kettle geometry as two big factors that uh, are hard to control. So... Um, I guess uh, I guess what we'll have to do is uh, repeat this experiment and get uh, the most minute details about everybody's brewing process, huh? Yeah, time to measure the pH and the protein levels and the this and that. <laughs> yeah. Science is hard. Yeah. So anyway, let's just wrap this up here. Uh, I hope you guys have uh, enjoyed these conversations and uh, get something out of this uh, this experiment. Um, you know it. Obviously, there are no conclusive results, uh, but there are some interesting results that might make you consider the way you brew and, uh, and, and what you think is happening. Uh, if you have any questions about the experiment or the results, the interpretation, have any ideas of your own, please shoot us an email to podcast at experimentalbrew.com and give us your thoughts. So a couple of the takeaways that I got from this that were kind of like real revelations for me is that uh, number one, unless you use the same equipment Glenn used and take the same amount of time to chill and pretty much do everything like he did and use whole hops. Right. And I've come into that. There's really no reason to think that the IBU level in your beer will be what you think it is. And the other thing that really blew me away is that this was never tested with pellet hops because, you know, as Glenn said, back when he did this work, pellet hops were so lousy that nobody used them. So it was all done with whole hops. These days, I think the pellets probably are more popular and used more widely than whole hops are. 
So it just kind of seems like uh, getting the IBUs that uh, are predicted by your software is going to be kind of a crapshoot, huh? Well, I think the real upshot is just learn what 12 IBUs, 20 IBUs, 50 IBUs tastes like for you when you brew it and you calculate it to that level, and then just use that as a relative measurement. And I think that's about the only way you're going to get there. Exactly. You know, don't worry about the numbers. Worry about what it tastes like to you. Uh, personally, uh, I, I love Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. It's like right in the 32, 35 IBU area. So that's my calibration beer for bitterness. But what you need to do is find one and then uh, relate your brews to it and, you know, think about what it tastes like, not what the numbers say. You can't drink numbers, right? Nope. You can only drink beer. That's right. Thank God. <laughs> that's right. So I guess that's uh, that's about it for today, huh? Yep. It's time for you to get ready to go to Hop and Brew School. It's time for me to go finish writing things. <laughs> so let's get people out of here. All right. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrew channel. I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums, mostly the AHA discussion forum. And uh, I'm on Facebook a lot talking about beer, so you can find us easily. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And we got this fancy newfangled thing called voicemail. You can get a hold of us at 626-765-1AL. You can even leave a text at that number. That is darn cool. But please leave us a name. Yeah, please leave your name and maybe even where you are. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.